Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. In these next two podcast episodes, I'll be discussing sensitivities or intolerances to particular food families. I'm not talking about food allergies or what we would call specific IgG food sensitivities. Here I'm talking about when our body is reacting to something that naturally occurs in various foods. It can feel as if we are randomly reacting to different foods. However, more often, there is something the foods share. It could be that they are high in histamine or high in oxalates or high in salicylates or high in lectins or even sulfur or what we call FODMAPs. You may even be reacting to more than one food family as these sensitivities themselves share common root causes. Aside from sensitivities, I'll talk about three food families that can have a more direct impact on neurotransmitter functioning for some people. These include foods high in copper, foods high in folate, and foods high in glutamate. To avoid this podcast being just lists of foods and lists of symptoms, for each I'm simply going to briefly talk about the general component the body is reacting to and why. I'll only mention the most common symptoms and the most problematic foods or the foods with the highest content of whichever family I'm talking about. And I'll talk generally about what causes these issues and what can be done. I'll be giving specific resources, so as you listen, just stay open to what catches your attention. Then know that you can always dig deeper. What you don't want to do listening to this podcast, is to become fearful of food. You want to eat, and you want to eat as varied a diet as is possible, given your own situation. Avoiding more foods than are necessary, and for longer than necessary, can lead to further problems with the microbiome, which is the balance of microbes in our gastrointestinal tract. It can also impact our nutritional status, because many of the foods that I'll be talking about would otherwise be good for our overall health. And it can make it harder to be with people if we're extremely limiting our diet. And if we have a fear-based relationship with food, the stress of this can have its own negative impacts on our immune reactivity, on our gut microbiome, and our overall well-being. I think this is one of the risks of this type of podcast and really a risk of functional medicine in general. If it's not balanced with other healing approaches, for example, to lower our immune reactivity or to help with gut health, it can put people at odds with food and with their body. So if you have a problem with a food group, usually avoidance isn't necessary for the long term. Something is typically causing high immune reactivity, and I'll explain why this is very often mold toxins. So there are a number of articles and online groups that will address these food families, and very little of mold toxicity or other biotoxins are being discussed there. And so the end point becomes simply avoidance. And my hope with this podcast is to move people in their thinking so that they don't have to have a life of ongoing avoidance of particular food groups. Before I go through some of these families related to sensitivities, know that many, but not all, of the physical and brain-related symptoms will overlap. This is because many are related to mast cell activation. 
I have a previous podcast about mast cell activation, but know that these cells are part of the immune response. When they are triggered, they release histamine, which we think of with allergies, and inflammatory mediators that can travel to other parts of the body. If they are in a state of high reactivity, it doesn't take much to trigger them to release those inflammatory mediators. Biotoxins, for example, toxins made by yeast or mold, or even things like Lyme and Bartonella, are commonly what is causing mast cells to be especially reactive. And of those, I would say mold toxins are the most common. While mast cells are throughout the body, they are especially prevalent in the gastrointestinal tract, the skin, the respiratory system, starting with our nose and sinuses all the way down to our lungs, and urinary tract. So these are areas where you will, as I go through each family, you'll hear a number of symptoms from these particular areas. But also, joints are a common area in the body affected. Though mast cells are not in the brain, they do communicate with inflammatory cells in the brain, triggering inflammation there. So this could look like brain fog, fatigue, depression, but also anxiety or hyperactivity, and in some cases, mania or psychosis. So though avoiding these foods can help, avoiding the foods often isn't getting to the deepest root cause. For each group, there does appear to be a genetic vulnerability, but again, this is an aligning of genetics often with disruption of the microbiome and some form of toxicity. Another reason these food families can be challenging, not only do the symptoms overlap, but some of the foods will also overlap. Specifically, oxalates, salicylates, and lectins are all primarily from plants. So you could be eating something deemed very healthy, for example, black beans, which are high in oxalates, high in salicylates, and high in lectins. Similarly, avocado, which gets a lot of positive attention, is high in histamine, high in folate, high in copper, and high in salicylates. Fermented foods can be very problematic for people who are struggling with histamine sensitivity. For most people, however, those would be very beneficial probiotic foods for the microbiome. So I hope you're starting to understand why someone with these underlying vulnerabilities may start to have new symptoms when they are starting a healthier diet. They're taking out carbs, putting in more vegetables, and with that, perhaps some of their symptoms are improving and other symptoms could be getting worse. For each of these food families, there is variability into how someone might respond. Someone may have a severe reaction and someone else mild. Some will react to all the foods in the family and others to most of them. And here again, you don't want to limit more than you need to. So while food lists can be helpful, listening to your body, especially as you start to reintroduce foods in a family, will be especially important. And for those who do feel like they are reacting to almost all foods they put in their body, this is typically due to mast cell activation, which again, in my experience, is most often related to mold toxicity. There are other variables that can certainly contribute to mast cell activation, like a genetic vulnerability and or weakness in a stress hormone pathway, which I talk about on my mast cell activation podcast. 
before I move into the specific food groups, I'd also like to comment on what everyone can benefit from when it comes to food. And so that would be to having a diet that as much as possible is not processed, does not have additives or preservatives. So this is food that you would essentially be preparing or for the most part that you would find in the periphery of the grocery in the produce and in the meat and fish departments as opposed to the middle aisles, which are often processed foods. Ideally also would be organic when possible and the Environmental Working Group has a nice list of the Clean 13, they might have changed it to the Clean 15, and the Dirty Dozen to help you know which produce items have the highest pesticides. Optimizing zinc levels is especially important because zinc impacts gut health, the immune system, and neurotransmitter functioning in the brain. I have a previous podcast on zinc, but I can't overstate how important this is when it comes to many of the issues that I'm going to talk about with food sensitivities. Avoiding toxicity or addressing toxicity. If, for example, someone has mold toxicity or has been exposed, would be very important. And then supporting the microbiome through increasing diversity of foods. That helps with the diversity of microbes. And that helps with us having less inflammation. Probiotics can be helpful, as can pre- and probiotic foods. In this podcast, I'll talk about histamine and the plant-based foods that include oxalates, salicylates, and lectins. And then in the next podcast, I'll discuss high-sulfur foods, FODMAPs, and then food groups that relate to neurotransmitter activity, including high-copper foods, high-folate, and glutamate. So starting with histamine, main thing to remember about histamine is that microbes produce histamine when they're breaking down food. So the longer something has aged or been left over, the higher the histamine content will be. And so this will be foods such as anything that's been fermented, anything that is left over, Beef happens to have a higher histamine content than chicken because it goes through an aging process so that we can digest it. Also, dried fruit and dried meats. Certain fresh fruits and vegetables can also be high in histamine. However, spinach, strawberries, avocado, tomato, citrus are all high in histamine. But histamine intolerance can occur for individuals for a couple of reasons, but one primary reason can be that they are unable to break down histamine in the gastrointestinal tract. So we have a gene, DAO, or diamine oxidase, which its job is to break down histamine in food. And if we have a weakness on that gene, and that could be because of what we call polymorphism, that is sort of like a mutation, but if we have a weakness on that gene, and we don't have adequate DAO to break down histamine in food, then the histamine will move into our bloodstream and we can experience symptoms. Another enzyme that's involved in breaking down histamine is histamine N-methyltransferase, HNMT. And this is something that is involved with breaking down histamine 
once it makes its way into the bloodstream. Methylation, which I've talked about previously, is involved in this breakdown of histamine as well, and here requires the presence of S-adenosylmethionine, which basically is SAMe for those who follow these types of details. Other enzymes involved in the metabolic pathways of histamine that I'll mention because someone inquired on Facebook would be HNMT, ALDH, and MAO. But for the most part, I think about DAO, HNMT, and overall methylation. Aside from genetics, medications can impact the functioning of DAO. Another reason someone might have histamine intolerance could be, instead of a DAO insufficiency, they could have an overload of histamine for other reasons. So perhaps they're dealing with mast cell activation, releasing a lot of histamine into the body in addition to allergens, and just having an overall overload. And then upon eating something high in histamine, that just tips the scales. So DAO does break down histamine, but it doesn't necessarily completely remove it. So if you think of histamine as a cup, once full and overflowing, that could happen even without a DAO insufficiency. Brain-related symptoms with histamine intolerance or sensitivity could be fatigue, brain fog, depression. It could also be irritability or anxiety. Again, the symptoms will not necessarily be specific. There can be gastrointestinal symptoms from bloating to diarrhea, abdominal pain, constipation, nausea. But people don't have to have all of these symptoms. Respiratory symptoms could be nasal congestion, sneezing, shortness of breath, runny nose. Someone might have rapid heart rate, drop in blood pressure. Skin issues could be flushing. I would say that's more common. Eczema, swelling, itching and for some people, headaches or dizziness. So again, the causes could be genetic. It could be a combination of genetics, methylation imbalance, mast cell activation. It could be high histamine levels from the gut microbiome itself. So microbes in the gut can be making histamine. There are certain microbes and probiotics that are histamine-producing. Or, as I mentioned, a medication could be impacting DAO. Treatment involves limiting high histamine foods. Some people may need to avoid most temporarily. Others just avoid enough of these foods or avoid eating some of these foods in combination. Fresh food and avoiding anything left over is helpful. Using DAO, taken 15 to 30 minutes before eating, can be helpful. An antihistamine is necessary in some cases. If someone's undermethylated, treating methylation. If someone has mast cell activation, treating that and also addressing what's causing the mast cell activation. The resolution can depend on the cause. Most people, if treated for underlying toxicity, addressing the microbiome and inflammation, will have more room in that cup of histamine, so to speak, so they may not be as reactive. Others, however, could have a strong genetic component and need to use DAO or limit high histamine foods for the longer term. 
I'd like to move on to the three food families that relate most specifically to plants. And this is why improving someone's diet or going towards juicing or following a lot of fad diets can be creating symptoms for some people. Oxalates is the first one I'll mention. And when you think about oxalates, think about crystals. Oxalates are molecules in food that keep animals from eating them. And when in high enough amounts, these molecules will form crystals that can damage tissues and cause what we call oxidative stress. So they can create cell damage and they can deplete the body of antioxidants needed to protect us from other things. Normally, however, they aren't a problem for people. They are also made by mold. Factors that could contribute to someone being sensitive to oxalates in food or having more oxalates present in the body could be genetic, so specific polymorphisms again, in combination with perhaps a high oxalate diet, Perhaps they have mold toxicity or mold growth in the body, usually in the sinuses and or gastrointestinal tract. Leaky gut, which is gut permeability, so things are moving into the bloodstream more easily. There's also evidence that glyphosate, which is a common herbicide, and something that we would be regularly exposed to, especially if we're not eating organic foods. And even with organic foods, there's still going to be some glyphosate exposure. There are certain antibiotics that appear to diminish microbes that otherwise would deal with oxalates in the gastrointestinal tract. So those crystals can cause pain and injury and tissue damage. Kidney stones would be the most known disorder related to oxalates, but also interstitial cystitis, which can feel like having urinary tract infection. However, there's not an actual infection. Vulvodynia, which is pain around the opening of the vagina, has also been documented to be due to oxalates. Arthritis or joint pain can be related to those crystals in the joints. Fibromyalgia, the oxalates are causing pain in muscle tissue. Other conditions, cataracts, polycystic ovaries, endometriosis, fibroids, thyroid dysfunction, vertigo, and triggering of mast cell activation and all the symptoms that that by itself can cause. Know that some of the things that I'm referring to could be caused by other conditions as well, but have been associated with oxalates. The brain, because mast cells can be triggered, can be symptoms that we see involving the brain when someone has mast cell activation. So that could be depression, anxiety, brain fog, panic, fatigue, and for some people, even mania or psychosis. There is an association with autism and high oxalates. Foods highest in oxalates, and there are extensive lists that can be found, and when I give resources at the end, there is a group that works closely with a lab that measures oxalates even in processed foods. But foods highest in oxalates include almonds, beets, chocolate, plantains, spinach, and sweet potatoes, just to name a few. We can actually test for oxalates. The test that I use is the Great Plains Organic Acids Test. It has three oxalate markers. Someone could still have an oxalate issue even if these aren't elevated, but generally would consider this the best we have to evaluate for oxalates. 
two of those markers relate to a genetic vulnerability. And if you learn through hopefully working with a practitioner or nutritionist that you have high oxalates, you do not want to stop high oxalate foods abruptly. This will cause a rapid mobilization of oxalates and a worsening of symptoms, as well as quite a toxic exposure to your body. So what we typically recommend is that it be done very slowly, about 5 to 10% a week. So one way to do that would be to look at what you eat, look at where the high oxalate foods are, and maybe start to switch out some of those for medium oxalate levels and then gradually whittle your way down. There are other ways beyond lowering exposure from food that can be helpful, and one is soaking, boiling, or roasting can help lower the amount of oxalates in medium oxalate foods. Drinking plenty of water is important, B6 has been found to be helpful for various reasons I won't go into. There are supplements that appear to bind oxalates and take them out of the body with the stool. There are claims that a probiotic VSL number three can break down oxalates. And there's evidence that high vitamin C doses can aggravate an oxalate condition. More what I would call deep root cause treatment would be addressing the microbiome, treating mold in the body if present, removing mold toxins, which could be causing someone to have more of a immune reactivity to things like oxalates. They may be reacting to chemicals in their environment in addition to these chemicals and natural chemicals in food. They may be more reactive to stress, electromagnetic fields, weather changes. Helping calm the immune system is very important and addressing what is causing the immune system to be so reactive. Again, I would mention mold toxicity as being a common culprit. If someone has a strong genetic component, we can't necessarily undo that, but we can help them lower the overall load And for everyone, their sensitivity and intolerance may be different. Another plant-based food family is salicylates. And think of these as basically a plant chemical. I associate oxalates with crystals and salicylates with a natural chemical. And aspirin is a synthetically derived salicylate. So these are chemicals made by plants or man-made and used in cleaners or medications such as aspirin. Those who have an intolerance can often have problems with both the plant-based and the synthetic. Like oxalates, they're part of the plant's defense system, protecting it from insects, microbes, and even weather elements. They're found in herbs, spices, fruit, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and oils in varying concentrations, so I'll comment more specifically shortly. They're also in personal care products, toothpaste, perfumes, creams, some household products, and essential oils. Generally, they're anti-inflammatory, so for most people, they're very good. A small percentage of people will have immune reactivity 
from salicylates. Associated symptoms can be an aspirin allergy, physical symptoms, I mentioned previously skin, respiratory, digestive, um, in this case frequent urination, but ringing in ears can occur, muscular pain, back pain, even dystonias, so this would be muscle spasms or tics. Anaphylaxis is possible, so that's a full-blown allergic reaction where there can be drops in blood pressure, swelling in the throat, where someone is unable to breathe. This is when you imagine the most severe type of allergic reaction. As you can see, many of these symptoms are fairly aligned with mast cell activation. And again, salicylates can trigger mast cell activation. As far as brain symptoms, ADHD, insomnia, nightmares or night terrors, anxiety, chronic fatigue, and in some cases, depression. Most of food, keep in mind that salicylates can build up over a few days. So reaction may not seem as quick as a food allergy, which would be right away. High salicylate foods, vegetables would include broccoli, mushrooms, sweet potato, pepper, asparagus, zucchini. Fruit would be all berries, pitted fruit, including apricots, cherries, peaches, and grapes, most teas, wine, most nuts, but especially almonds, cashew, macadamia, pistachio, and pumpkin seeds flavorings, so mints and fruit flavorings, olive oil, coconut oil, and processed meats, so luncheon meats, most vinegars, spices, and dried fruit. So why would some people be more susceptible to salicylates? Again, perhaps they have mast cell activation and they're reacting to a lot of things. Perhaps they have high oxalates. Perhaps the high oxalates and mold toxins are plugging up those detoxification pathways necessary to take care of salicylates. Perhaps there is low sulfur in their diet and they're less able to detoxify. Perhaps they have genetic vulnerabilities that make it more difficult for them to detoxify. So treatment can be avoidance, although I wouldn't consider that the deepest level of treatment. There are elimination diets. The Feingold Protocol, for example, focuses on salicylates and also removing food additives. The fail-safe diet addresses salicylates, amines, glutamate, sulfites, and additives. There is some evidence that desensitization could be helpful. This is an immune-based therapy intended to lower reactivity. If someone who is especially sensitive has an exposure to a high salicylate food, they may benefit from an antihistamine, Epsom salt baths to help get sulfur into the body. But more generally, as with the histamine and oxalates, the recommendation would be to stabilize mast cells, improve the gut microbiome, support liver and detox pathways, and to address mold if present to lower oxalates, but also to lower toxins, both of which could be clogging up the detoxification pathways impacting salicylates. The third plant-based food family that I'll mention are lectins. And lectins are proteins on the outer coating of seeds. And when I'm using the term seeds, think about grains as being the seeds of grass, 
nuts as being the seeds of trees, beans being the seeds of legumes, and seeds of everything else are what we typically think of as seeds. So some of the higher lectin foods would be certain grains, corn, oat, rice, buckwheat, beans, certain nuts, pumpkin and sunflower seeds, the cucumber family, so melon, squash, and cucumber, nightshades, tomatoes, peppers, and potatoes. So when a seed is stressed or damaged, lectins are released. And lectins are resistant to stomach acid. They can open the gut-blood barrier. So gluten is just one type of lectin in wheat. It's also present in rye and barley. And it can cause what we call leaky gut or gut permeability, which contributes to autoimmunity. And that's because food particles will be getting through that gut-blood barrier into the bloodstream and triggering an immune response. Lectins can contribute to inflammation in a number of ways. They can also cause red blood cells to clump together, or what we call agglutinate, and in high doses contribute to anemia. Symptoms can include joint pain and swelling, bloating and abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome, skin issues, water retention, excessive mucus. Brain-related symptoms could be brain fog, fatigue, any mental health issue associated with mast cell activation, and even neurodegenerative disease. So that would be things like dementia. And as with the other families I mentioned, there appears to be a genetic predisposition, something triggering the immune system. Low zinc could be at play. Mast cell activation can be contributing to the symptoms as lectins can trigger mast cells in a number of ways. We don't measure lectins, However, one can do a six-week low-lectin diet and see what symptoms improve. There are ways to lower lectins in foods. One would be peeling. So, for example, peeling a cucumber, seeding, so cutting the seeds out, um, pressure cooking of squash, potatoes, rice, oats, beans can be helpful. Pre-soaking can be helpful. And sprouting may be helpful in some cases. And again, the more sustainable treatment would be to address the microbiome, address toxicity, address nutrient imbalances, especially if low zinc is present. So I've talked about histamine, which is related to very often aging or fermentation of foods. I've talked about oxalates, which have to do with the formation of crystals I've talked about salicylates, a natural chemical, and I've talked about lectins, which is a protein on the surface of seeds. In the next podcast, I'll be discussing high sulfur foods, FODMAPs, and food groups that are high in copper, high in folate, and foods that are high in glutamate. So I'd like to close with encouraging anyone out there with food sensitivities to know that what you don't want to be doing is endlessly going down a path of food avoidance, hoping that that will be the only way to relieve your symptoms. There are many ways to lower our immune reactivity and to lower mast cell activation 
including neural retraining. So really retraining our nervous system that specifically interacts with the immune system so that our physiology is less reactive. We can also access the vagus nerve on a regular basis and train our body not to be as reactive from a mast cell standpoint and not to be in that state of chronic fight or flight, which I would say is very typical in our culture. Why I do holistic psychiatry is because I think it really it takes both approaches. I think some of this avoidance, especially as one's working through these deeper root causes, can be very helpful, can lower symptoms, and allow someone to move through the healing process. But if that's all someone is doing is supplements, avoiding particular foods, and living an avoidant lifestyle, the likelihood is that they're going not only not fully heal, but have increased stress response related to all the vigilance it takes to avoid foods and to avoid certain environments. A holistic approach I've found both personally and for many people that I work with to be the most impactful. And I hope that this podcast provides you hope and provides you encouragement to look for the deeper root causes and to consider some of the, what I would call, right brain aspects of healing that I try to alternate these podcasts from more the detailed science and more left brain type thinking to the right brain approaches that tap into accessing calm from our body, learning not to cling to outcomes, to see the bigger picture, and to really draw from what have been ancient traditions of healing. I hope you found this topic informative and useful. If you know someone you think may benefit, please consider sharing. If you'd like to learn more about root causes of brain-related symptoms, please visit my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com where you're welcome to subscribe to learn more about upcoming podcasts or blog posts. If you'd like to help me get this podcast out into the world, please consider engaging by liking, commenting, or sharing on one of the social media sites. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I look forward to connecting with you in a future podcast, and until then, take care.